This is The Rooted Podcast, a conversation about the Christian worldview and its implications for every part of life. The Rooted Podcast is hosted by Steve Royce and Brady Johnson. Together, they have over two decades of experience in the business and tech industries and share a desire to help others filter all of life through the Christian faith. And thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Brady. And on this episode, we're going to be doing our deep dive on Jesus' atonement. And more specifically, on penal substitutionary atonement. You did it. Yeah, it's a mouthful. PSA for short. <laughs> yeah. We can call it PSA if uh, if that's less of a less of a mush mouth. Yeah, it's definitely a mouthful to say. <laughs> so I may stumble a few times. All good, man. Yeah, this is our deep dive on episodes 96 98 and 100 uh, with the bonus of episode 99 thrown in so uh, if you haven't listened to those i highly recommend it uh episode 96 steve uh talks a little bit about uh paul's writing and uh, his perspective on on rightfully identifying jesus as our substitute uh episode uh, 98 you get a nice uh view as old testament looks at it when you go into hebrews 10 and then you get some good uh rebuttals to some common uh I guess disagreements or misunderstandings, yeah. objections, that uh, kind objections. Of thing. Yep. Yeah. In uh, episodes 98. And then the bonus thrown in there, uh, I think is actually going to tie into some of the questions I had. So cool. Yeah. So why don't you uh, maybe give us a high level recap? We can kind of dig into each of the contents from there and then yeah. throw some questions at you. I'll go real high level because there's just so much uh, scripture that was in those episodes. It's, it's hard for me now because you know we record these a few weeks after the fruit snacks airs to kind of like fully fully recall because there's new content that's in my brain right now but (laughs) uh basically it's this idea that the main thrust of the doctrine of the atonement is that jesus is our substitute that he became sin for us and that because of this sort of great exchange that happens, we essentially become the righteousness of, of God. We become Christ's righteousness while he becomes our sinfulness. And that's not to say that this is something that actually happens as if Jesus ceases to be righteous, but that more in legal terms with regard to um, our status as believers, this is an exchange that happens. And this is based in all sorts of scriptural references that we, we looked at. And that is so that God as a just judge can both be just in that he is rightly and fully punishing sin, which it needs to happen in order for him to still be not only just, but good and, and to be God And he is able to justify us in that he can restore the relationship to us that we could never have because if we were left to basically, if our own efforts were required in order to justify ourselves, well, 
not only would our own efforts never get us to a point where we would be able to be in God's presence, but the very fact that we have sinned deserves death. And so the the punishment that we would get would basically remove us from the possibility of ever having a relationship with God because you can't you can't come around on the other side of that and be like okay I died but now I'm good now, right? And so by by Jesus doing this, he is uniquely able to bridge this gap and to uh, not only uh, to die as if he had sinned and to suffer the 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 actual deserved penalty, but because he's God, he can conquer death and he can come back from that, which is not something that anyone else could do. And so he's able to uh, he's able to bridge the gap in a, in a way that literally no one else could do. And it's this idea, though, that that um, we need a substitute, that we need a sacrifice to pay for our sin, and that it's not just uh, our it's not just our intentions or our our good thoughts or our efforts to be holier that that suffice in terms of salvation. Nor is it God's uh, or within God's prerogative to simply just shrug off sin and just to say, well, I'm just going to decide to forgive because it's not just a personal affront uh, to God, our sin, which it is, but it also, God is as God. He has, uh, he has a universe and a creation to run in, in, in that sense. He, he has to maintain the, the order as the creator. He mm-hmm. has to maintain uh, and vindicate uh, injustice and, and and unrighteousness, and all these things have to be punished. And so it, it's um, he can't just wink at sin and just let it go because then he ceases to be good. And so Jesus is the focal point in this way of this doctrine, and this stuff stems all the way back to the Old Testament when you look at the foreshadowing that was occurring with the sacrifice of animals and their their blood could never actually pay for sin this is what the writer of hebrews talks about but it foreshadows this time when god would provide the ultimate sacrifice the perfect sacrifice that would once and for all be able to pay for sin and this is foreshadowed all the way back to abraham and isaac when abraham says you know god has god will provide for himself a a spotless offering and in their case it was it was a ram but it foreshadows a time when jesus is going to come and be that sacrifice and so the heart of the gospel the heart of this doctrine of the atonement is that jesus took our place on the cross and he took the punishment that we deserved even though he was he was in reality innocent. He was punished as if he was guilty so that we, even though we are guilty, can be treated as if we were innocent. And like I said, it's this great exchange idea that uh, that's tied up all within this. But lots and lots of scripture to anchor this idea in. So that's the, that's the penal substitutionary atonement doctrine kind of in a nutshell. Yeah. And as you can see, you know, Steve, gives that overview you can see how everything from the more attributes uh deep dive we did last time 
uh, talking about, you know, God's holiness, his justice, and then the grace and mercy. And, you know, as we talked about that kind of dovetailing into this conversation, um, you know, you see a lot of, uh, the grace and mercy, obviously. Um, I, I really enjoyed, uh, the conversation around the uh, mercy seat and being able to get that depiction of, you know, what the mercy uh, seat meant. Uh, do you mind recap, recapping that a little bit? Yeah, the mercy seat is, and actually it's something that's coming up in uh, a few more weeks. I think it's going to be the early 120s episodes are going to be on good spiritual beings, the good guys, and cherubim are one of the topics there because they're they're a spiritual being that are, they're part of the good guys. And they are the... They are the the winged beings that are uh, these like cast statues out of gold that are uh, that sit on top of the the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And so that the cover of the Ark of the Covenant is known as the mercy seat. And it is where the blood of certain sacrifices, specifically on like the day of atonement, uh, was applied to the mercy seat and the mercy seat was also known as, and it's described in scripture as God's footstool. So the idea is, and like I said, we, I, I elaborate on this a little bit more on the episode about cherubim, but the idea is that if the mercy seat is God's footstool, then this is a throne room. The Holy of Holies is God's throne room. So you have to picture a throne above the Ark of the Covenant. And if God's throne is there, God is sitting on his throne and his feet are resting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And these cherubim are sort of right there between you and God. If you were to walk up to the Ark of the Covenant, you got to get through these cherubim first. And that that plays directly into what the role and the function of cherubim were, which I'm not going to spoil that. But um, the the idea of the mercy seat is you are you're basically directly in God's presence at that point. You're in the throne room. You're right before the the King. In this case, the the Creator of everything, and the blood is being uh, applied to that as as a as an offering. Of basically, please accept this offering as as a covering, right? And so the the covering idea in the Old Testament is, as we discussed, and as the writer of Hebrews says, it's never it never could pay for sins. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do that. But what it could do is defer. Uh, it could defer punishment, and that's not because God is some bloodthirsty, you know, monster. It's it's that something needs to be done about sin. And there are times in in the Old Testament where God just judges it because it's so bad, and because there there is nothing offered, it, the the people are not repentant. Whether this is foreign nations or even uh, Israel herself, but there are other times where God is, according to um, according to New Testament writers, God is looking forward. Even in the Old Testament, He's looking forward to a time when the perfect sacrifice will be offered. And because time functions differently from God's perspective, God is able, even way back then, to look forward to the time when he knows it's going to happen. He knows it's as good as done. And when that happens, all sin is paid for. 
Uh, that's that's the the language that gets used in in First John, for example, is that all sin, the the sin of the whole world. So we're not just talking about the the sins of believers. We're not just talking about the sins of uh, that have been committed post cross. We're talking about all sin for all people for all time is paid for. That's how that's how perfect and sufficient the sacrifice of Jesus was. So that. What that means is that if someone goes to hell, it's not because they have sin that hasn't been dealt with. Their sin, theoretically, has already been paid for by Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice is at least sufficient to cover that sin. The reason that people go to hell is not because their sins haven't been paid for. The reason they go to hell is because they don't believe in the one and only object uh, of that has paid for their sin, right? And so this goes back to the idea, even in the Old Testament, the method of salvation is is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Yahweh makes a promise. Do you believe his promise or don't you? Do you believe that he is going to do what he said he'll do or don't you? And in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, the people start grumbling and complaining and they say, this is this is dumb. Let's go back to Egypt. They did not believe that God would deliver them, even though he promised that he would, even though he did all these things in Egypt and in the Red Sea and to cross the Jordan River and all these things in order to deliver them, they still didn't believe. And it was because of their unbelief that they were not allowed to enter the promised land. And in the New Testament... It's the same thing. God, through Jesus, has promised to make a way for us to have a restored relationship and fellowship with him. And it's the same thing. It's do you believe Yahweh or don't you? Because Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. So it's still Yahweh made a promise. Do you believe Yahweh or don't you? And so it is unbelief that is sort of the the cause for people Uh, not experiencing eternal life it's not that their sins haven't been paid for it's that they they just choose to reject the means by which their sins are paid for and if as the writer of hebrews says if you reject that jesus is jesus is plan a for redemption and there is no plan b so if you reject plan a well that's that's just kind of it there is there is nothing else plan a is so perfect it's so uh, good and sufficient, there's not a need for a plan B. So if you choose to to go a different way, well, that's just it. That's all there is, and there is nothing else. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers. I got on a little rabbit trail there. I don't know if that answers your question or not. But. No, that was good. And I think it actually segues into uh, one of the big things I found was um, the, this idea behind uh, limited atonement. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think it's commonly more of a Calvinistic view. Yeah, it's more of a Reformed theology mm-hmm. uh, position, but it's just, the, it's just the idea, in case you don't happen to be from a Reformed background, it is a point of theology that basically says that Jesus' um, death is basically paying for or intended to pay for the sins of those who... God knows will come to believe in him, Mm -hmm. meaning that Jesus's death 
does not pay for the sins of those who don't believe. And frankly, I mean, I know that that is a, that's a, a point of theology that works within the system of reformed thought and it goes quite well. It matches up with the other points of reformed doctrine. I'm just not sure. Well, I am sure. I, I don't think it's necessary. Um, not only because there are issues with how to interpret passages like First John two two that he's that he's paid for the sin of not just us but the whole world. Mm-hmm. And I have heard and read that there are there are. And I'm not. I don't want to put words in in everybody's mouth who. Uh, comes from a reformed background because you very well could think differently about this. But I have heard that some reformed uh, theologians will take that verse and they will interpret it to mean that, well, what it, what John is saying is that Jesus died for the whole world of the elect of those who would. My problem with that is that that's, that is nowhere to be found in the text. So you're inserting that idea, literally adding those words to what John is saying in order to get it to fit within that system. I I think the face value reading of scripture tells us that all sin is paid for by Jesus. And, and frankly, it's, again, I think it's unnecessary scripturally to make sin be the problem after Jesus. I just don't see how sin is the problem because if you look at the warning that the, the writer of Hebrews gives to his audience over and over again, and he ties it not to some sort of moral failing on their part that that you might uh, you might lose the confidence that you have. You might go back and basically forsake your belief, and then what more can be done for you? It's they're not losing their salvation because they've had some sort of moral lapse. They're losing their salvation because the writer of Hebrews ties ties it back to Numbers fourteen and the wandering in the wilderness on stuff. They're not losing it because they did something bad and God took it away. Mm-hmm. They're they're choosing not to believe anymore. Because if you go back to Numbers 14, the 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 disobedience is unbelief. Mm-hmm. The people didn't believe anymore. And so it just comes down to this question of like, well, there there won't there surely will not be unbelievers in heaven. Mm-hmm. Heaven is for believers. And so the only real thing that can sort of undo salvation is if you don't believe it anymore. Mm-hmm. So it has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with not doing certain things or making sure that you do certain things like pray and read your Bible every day and all this stuff. Uh, Mike, Mike Kaiser, I'm listening to one of his podcasts about Hebrews right now. And he, he puts it really well. He's just like, we have to think of it this way in terms of salvation. If, if, getting gaining salvation had nothing to do with my moral perfection then my moral imperfection has nothing to do with with losing it right mm-hmm. if i didn't get it by being perfect if i couldn't get it by being perfect then why does me my not being perfect have anything to do with losing it right and so i i think that's right on and so it's a I think the the what you see in scripture when you look at like there how the writer of Hebrews goes back and looks at the Old Testament examples and if salvation works exactly the same then I think that this red thread runs through the whole Bible as well that the only real question is belief do you believe or don't you believe if you do then you 
are secure and you you have the promise. God has guaranteed that he will he's guaranteed that he will make it happen and that he can be trusted. And if we believe him, if we trust him, then it's as good as done. But if we don't believe him, then like like there what else can what else is there? What else can be done? There is no plan B. And so this idea of limited atonement I think is unnecessary because it makes the reason that people go to hell that their sin is not paid for and it was never intended to be. I think God can pay for everyone's sin and it's and we don't have a problem with why people go to hell. They go to hell because they don't believe. Mm-hmm. And that was always the case and it will always be the case and it doesn't need I don't think to be any more complex than that. It's just it's about belief. It always has been and and it always will be. I think one of the other things that really came up that you know, I think I've heard over the years as well is this idea behind okay, you have you have this idea of faith in Christ alone is all all it takes and then you know, all your sins are wiped away. What's the point in uh, getting rid of your sin if you could if you're just forgiven? Mm-hmm. You know, won't you just perpetually sin and and everything will be okay? Yeah. Uh, kind of this idea of you've got your fire insurance, right? And you know, what's the difference there between this idea of like a transaction versus yep. kind of the transformation that you know Christians ought to have, right? So there's a couple thoughts there. My my first thought would be if we back up from a high, the highest level. And we look at a person's life. So Jesus said about false teachers, he said this about others in the church and in in the body as well, that you'll know them by their fruits. Mm -hmm. And we are repeatedly throughout scripture commanded to strive to produce good fruit. And the reason for that, again, has nothing to do with our salvation because you're right. Salvation is based on belief. However, James, the brother of Jesus, makes a very... I think good and compelling argument in his epistle that while God does know the heart, God knows whether you believe or whether you don't, I don't know that because mm-hmm. I can't see your heart. So the only thing that I have to go on is your outward actions, the fruit of your life. If that fruit is not consistent with the life of someone who is a believer and who is living their life out of gratitude and just joy that they have been forgiven and that they are free from sin and their life is continuing to demonstrate just these same things that Paul writes to the Corinthians and the Ephesians and says, you're free from that. Don't, don't stay there. But if this person is just perpetually living there and I don't see any other thing in their life then it is absolutely cause to wonder whether they're actually a believer or not. And again, I don't know the heart and I'm not going to judge their heart and say that they definitely are or they definitely aren't. Only God knows that. All I'm saying is if someone is living in no way like a Christian, I think it's a fair question to be like, well, are they really a Christian? Like, do they really believe this? Because belief and behavior are... Uh, are directly tied together, not just in the Bible, but Jesus does this. In John 14 and 15, he says to his disciples over again, uh, over and over again, if you love me, keep my commandments, do what I tell you. So love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus are are directly equivocated. He, Jesus said that. 
And so I think there's a through line there to say, like, if I say I love Jesus, but I don't live like it. I mean, John in first John says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, or if you walk in darkness, you're a liar. Right. Mm -hmm. And John just calls it right out there. And so first of all, I think there's a, I think that's a very fair question to just examine if my life isn't reflective, at least in some way that I have, uh, that I have come to believe these things, do I believe them? And again, it's not performance based. It's just a question to say, if I, if I believe this, wouldn't that change my behavior? Like if I believed that this chair would not hold me up, would I sit in it? Right? Like my behavior would necessarily be impacted by my beliefs. If my beliefs were important enough, if they were strong enough. And so there's some sort of correlation there. Not causation, though. Uh, on another level, you've also got this this um, something something to do with not just are they a believer or not at all, but Paul warns against this very thing. And I think that there's something to be said for the fact that Paul got accused of teaching this where where he went some places, which tells me that even though I don't think that this is what Paul was teaching that, Hey, God's grace is free. So you can just live however you want. He got accused of teaching that an awful lot, which tells me that his gospel was a lot closer to that than some sort of legalistic, you know, to be right with God, you have to believe and do this and live this way and don't do this sin and don't that. He never got accused of that. He got, he never got accused of legalism. He, combated legalism in the church. He got accused of, it's called licentiousness, of basically saying like, hey, just believe in Jesus and then you can do whatever you want. And again, he did not teach that, but he, his, his gospel message was absolutely open to that charge because his critics accused him of it all the time. Right. So Paul goes out of his way to say, don't do that, that that's you know, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? I think he says it in Romans. He says, may never right? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for that is not just because it totally affects our outer witness, but part of the reason as well is if, if we, if part of the point of this is that what were we saved for? We're, we're to be now, we're part of the family, or at least, you know, that's, that's God's goal in salvation is we are restored to our original intended function and purpose within all of creation. And that is to be with God as part of his family ruling and reigning alongside with him as he always intended. So if, if we're family and God is our father, I mean, and and James talks about this, the writer of Hebrews talks about this, that if you're out of line and your family, dad's going to discipline you. And he's not going to discipline you because he hates you. He's going to discipline you because he loves you. Mm -hmm. But there are actions that Christians can take that will directly invite the discipline, not the judgment, because there is no judgment. There is no condemnation in Christ, but discipline, because discipline is redemptive. The, The goal of discipline is to bring about repentance and to bring about a change in heart. But the point is, I would just say to a Christian is to say, I mean, you could do that. You're free to do that, but you're going to be inviting divine discipline into your life that frankly just doesn't have to be there. If you, if you just 
were to trust God that when he says, don't do this, it's not good for you. That again, it goes back to trusting. Do you really believe that when he says this, that that's what he, that's what he means and that he'll do it. Otherwise you're just, you're inviting discipline into your life. That's just completely unnecessary. It doesn't have to be that way, but it will be if you, if you choose to, to make it so. I mean, and I think it's James even says that, listen, some of you, some of you have taken this so far that, um, you know, you're, you, you have prematurely died physically, right? That God has judged you or God has, that God has disciplined you to the point where he's just said, I'm going to remove you because you, you're a bad witness, right? Like you're, you're so, uh, not obedient that you're done, you're done. You know, and this is the same thing uh, that you look at like there, the, the discipline on the the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament is the repeated disobedience after a certain point, God just says, all right, you're done, mm-hmm. you're done. And again, it's like, don't do that. Why would you want that? There's no reason that that would be necessary if you're just trying to pursue um, out of gratitude of this relationship. And it, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Again, it's not performance-based. It just means that as John uh, in first John, as he uses language of walking in darkness versus walking in light, it doesn't mean that you never sin. It just means that the overall trend of your life, your, your inner heart's desire, your innermost man desires to walk in fellowship with God and to be in the light. And so the language that he uses there is language of habitual, continual habits that you just willfully choose not to not to deal with and not to surrender to God. And that's different than that's different than struggling with sin or um, uh, f- falling because that stuff has been paid for, and God doesn't see you any differently um, when when you when you fail. Um, so, I mean, this, I think goes right to the heart of how a lot of, a lot of us have struggled with and do struggle with how we think about our salvation and we can get it right if we have to say it out loud. But in terms of the actual day to day, I think a lot of us probably struggle with, uh, can I say performance anxiety? (laughs) I think a lot of us really do. Like we, even though we know that's not what the Bible teaches, there's still this voice and man, it could be, could be our flesh. It could be, it could be Satan accusing us, even though he has no right to, but just this idea that if you do that, God's going to love you less, or he's not going to treat you as good or, Oh, you screwed up. And now God's not going to answer that prayer for you. Right. And like those things that again, back to, back to what Dr. Heiser said, if, if we didn't gain it through moral perfection, then moral imperfection isn't going to, isn't going to lose it for us. Jesus did it. Mm-hmm. And he did it when we were still sinners, when we hated God and wanted nothing to do with him. If he did it for us, then, then why does, why does the fact that I'm not perfect now change how God feels about me? I didn't want anything to do with God when Jesus died for me and, and he still chose to do it. So like clearly you can't get f- further from God than that. And so it's, it's all God. It all goes back to him. And what Jesus did is completely independent of who I am and how, how good I am. And it just, yeah. So the, this idea of like, so what there's a lot of, so what's not to mention, we didn't even get to this is in like first Corinthians three and other places that, 
your eternal role and responsibility and reward are directly tied to your earthly uh, performance. And again, performance, not with regard to salvation, but that what you, this is the parable of the talents, what you choose to do with what you've been given is going to determine to some extent what your ultimate role and reward will be in heaven. And that in heaven, we will not all be equal. We will not all have the same roles and responsibilities because the, the, the biggest rewards will be given to those who have served faithfully with what they've been given. And those who have rolled, rolled over and not done anything with it, who, who, you know, took what they were given and hid it in the dirt, like the, uh, like in the parable, or as Paul says, who built on the foundation of Christ with wood and hay and stubble and basically worthless things that are going to be burned up by fire. Well, you're there, you have the foundation of Jesus Christ, but you don't have anything else to show for it. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, other people built worthwhile things on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And those things will survive the refining fire and they will receive a reward. That's what Paul says. And so the implication is that others who don't build that way will not receive a reward. There will be a difference between us in heaven. And so your earthly obedience and your, you're just walking with, with God on a daily basis you you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so there's that aspect as well. So you've got witness, you've got discipline, and then you've also got your long-term future in the life to come to think about as well. But lots of good reasons not to just, you know, whatever with with how you live your Christian life. Yeah, no, that's really great. Thank you. Last question I have is actually twofold. Uh, really, because I'm combining two questions into one, because I believe there's some common under underpinning answer. All right. Um, say, how do I ask this? Uh, when you look at the atonement, you have God sacrificing Jesus, and I think some people would say, if if Jesus is God, then isn't God, who's all powerful, what's the purpose? Why did He have to do that? Was it necessary at all? And then I guess to answer the other side of the question is why would uh, an all loving God sacrifice his son? And I think you kind of alluded to this in uh, episode 100 uh, talking about, you know, the, the child abuser. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think there's some common answer in, in that. Yeah. I think I, I, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah. I think to answer your first question, what's what's the purpose i guess i would i would ask that what's the purpose for who yeah. right if 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 we're talking about god well of course god didn't need to do this mm-hmm. right that uh it had god would have suffered no loss by just continuing to just be in in fellowship with himself and mm-hmm. to just be him so he chose to do it not because of anything that he needed. He chose to do it because of us, right? So the purpose of salvation is not for God. It's for his creation, mm-hmm. specifically for, for us as humans. That, I think, is, again, just a demonstration of how much he, he has love for us that for whatever reason he chose to do this, even though he didn't need to, it wouldn't have harmed him in the least to not 
but because of who he is, he, he chose to, and it's a great thing for us, but it, it was purely a gift of God. Again, he completely freely given. He didn't need to give it and he would have been fine without it, but it so much the better for us. And because of his love and his generosity and his selflessness and all the attributes that he has, this is why he did it. Um, so, so that's, that's part of it. And then the, remind me again of the second part of your question of like, why, why would, why would he sacrifice Jesus? Right. Yeah. So getting into that, you know, he's an all loving God. And I think you kind of answered it. There is God's love for us. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it is because of his love Mm -hmm. that he, that he sent Jesus to die. And also we, we tend to frame this and, and you, you did it. And I, I raised it in one of the objections there of this, this whole objection of cosmic child abuse. Mm-hmm. We tend to frame God sending G, the father, sending the son as if, you know, the father is condemning his son to die and, and having him carted off and mm-hmm. sacrificed on a table or, you know, or something like that as if the son had no say whatsoever. Right. But that's not how scripture speaks of Jesus. The the scriptures say that that the son willingly laid down his life, that mm-hmm. he even said, nobody takes my life. I willingly lay it down. And Jesus even said, I think in John's gospel to one of the centurions, if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels mm-hmm. and they would deliver me from this. So the only reason that he didn't is because he chose not to. Right. So that... Yes, it is an act of the divine will to send the son, but it is just as much an act of the divine will on the son's part to remain on the cross mm-hmm. and to, I mean, think about, think about being under just ex- the most indescribable, excruciating pain. And all you have to do is blink or think, you know, think, I don't want to do this anymore. And you're not doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. So the will, like you know, the will to choose to stay under it when you don't have to, you don't have to do this, but you're going to do it anyway, and you're going to see it through. That's the picture that's painted. Is so the it is it is exactly and only out of this motivation of love, not only just not only from the Father toward us, but also from the Son, right? To to choose to do this, that um, this is. This is an act of pure love every every way you look at it. And why would God do that? Because because that's who he is. Right. And and as, you know, as if the the sort of this implied idea that there's this tension within the Godhead of like God wanted, you know, the the father wanted to do this and he sort of twisted the son's arm and and made him do it. It's like, no. This was always the plan. Right. And there was always, there was always peace and agreement and fellowship within the Godhead about this plan. Right. No one was ever hesitating about this plan. Everyone was on board, and this was always a hundred percent all in. Mm-hmm. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew why he was here, and he he was good with it. Yeah. Right. And and so. Yeah, why would why would the father do it? Why would the son do it? Why would the spirit what the the all of God did this, right? The right. the 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 trinity the trinity was not divided over 
this idea. They didn't get overruled by the father. He <laughs> right. said, well, I'm, I'm calling the ball here and this is what's going to happen. That's not, yeah, not how it went. Right. And, and I think again, to, to wrap it into, you know, again, the attributes, as we look back at the, the attribute conversations and you, you see who God is, and then you, you know, just look at the, the Hebrews, uh, kind of run through that you did. And it was a 90, 96, I believe. Again, you're seeing the foreshadowing mm-hmm. again, like you said, it's, it's always been written. We knew since the beginning of time that this was going to be how it was going to turn out. Yep. So yeah, nothing. Yeah. God is not surprised right. uh, by anything that happens. He, he always knew, which means that redemption was always part of the plan and that how redemption would occur was always in God's mind. He, he had this figured out and this was not, this was not a, uh, something that needed discussion or figuring out. It was just, he knew and, and he was good with it. And yeah, so, uh, I think just in terms of the atonement itself, it's just scripture over and over again, just points us to the fact that God did this for us because of who God is, not yeah. because of who we are. And so as we think about the atonement, this is the heart of the gospel message, right? right. That unlike every other belief system and religion out there, that is some in some way, shape or form performance-based that you know you have to do or say or be so that the deity will like you or accept you or that you will be good enough to be in his presence or you know whatever not only do you never know when that is when you've done enough when you are enough when you've given enough when you've served enough that the gospel is you you can let go of all that because first of all it doesn't work and second of all the only way you can get to God, you can't get to God from your end. God has to come to you. Yeah. And only in only in Christianity is that what God has done. And so the gospel message is, I think, one of great hope. It's one of just unbelievable love and just the freedom that it brings to go, again, my, my moral perfection or performance is not the it's not the linchpin that holds this whole thing together. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do. All I have to do is believe that's it is in, and we can struggle with, well, you know, am I good enough or did I do it? But the, the key question is to ask is, but do I believe yeah. if I still believe I'm still good? <laughs> that's it. Cause that's all that God requires is belief that when he said he would do it, that you take him at his word and that you trust him that when he said it, that he'll do it. And that if he said that I will save you, I will make you righteous. I will graft you in and you will be part of the family and that you will live forever with me. Do you believe him or not? And if you do, that's all, that's all he requires. And, um, and that's it. And that's the gospel. And that's, um, that's amazing. And I think, you know, you mentioned, and I think we can all see this as, again, as being the core of, of our faith. What are some of the common, uh, maybe objections that you guys have heard? I'd be really interested if you uh, want to share with us things that you've heard, uh, maybe drop us a line uh, on one of our socials or email us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, I, this is this is one of those topics that there's so much out there, and this has been I, I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say, like by by so many Christian teachers, this has been twisted so badly, mm-hmm. um, and there's so much out there right now that is about performance. And it's just, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. So yeah, if you, if you have more questions about the atonement or what the Bible says about it, or even just want to share experiences that you've had with other ways that this has been taught or conveyed, I mean, it's, there's just, there's a lot to this conversation. This is one of those doctrines that even though you know it in your head, knowing it and getting it into your, into your heart and into your soul are kind of two different things Mm -hmm. of just it's a daily reminder not to fall into that performance trap. It's a yep. daily reminder. Just remember all that God requires is belief. Mm-hmm. Do I believe? Okay, then I'm good. And yeah, that's that. Great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on the Rooted Podcast a creation of Rooted Productions and an affiliate of the Oasis Church in Gilbert, Arizona. For more information about the podcast or to submit a question or comment, please visit us at rooted.productions. Follow us on Instagram at rooted.productions or email podcast at rooted.productions. That's rooted.productions. We hope you'll join us next time.